We're speaking on functioning in the church tonight, so let's commit the evening to the Lord. Father, I just thank you for the wonderful praise that there's been in this meeting. Thank you for the words that we've sung. Is there anything, anything, anything too hard for thee? There isn't anything, anything, anything too hard for thee. And Father, we thank you so much that you are the Lord of all flesh, the Lord of the universe, the Lord of all creation. And Father, we're so thankful that it is with you that we have to do. I want to thank you, Father, that you are the very source of our lives, and that, Father, you are the one who supplies all that we need in this life. Father, I just thank you for your mercy, that you supply all we need for our salvation. And we're kept, kept for the day of salvation, even by the mighty moving of your power. Oh, Father, thank you so much for your mercy. Thank you that we can declare that we are the redeemed of the Lord, even this night. And Father, tonight we want it to ring out loud and clear that we are the people of God. We are his peculiar people, a royal priesthood. And Father, I ask in Jesus' name that you will be in total control of all that I say tonight, and that, Father, we should be really stirred in our most holy faith, and that, Father, we should start using the power that is available to us, the power that's been released, the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, and that, Father, we should find ourselves transformed by the preceding word, even tonight. Just come and bless the hearers and the speaker. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Now, I have to say, immediately that some of you may have the wrong idea about the subject that I'm speaking about tonight. I've called it functioning in the church, and undoubtedly some people either listening to the tape or sitting in the congregation assume that I'm going to speak about how to minister in the meetings or how to move in the Holy Spirit or something like that. If you've come with that in your mind, I'm afraid you're going to find that's not what I'm going to talk about at all tonight. If you remember former tapes, of course, I've dealt with these both in the basic series so far, earlier on in this series, and in the Fellowship Life series. No, I'm not dealing with that. In fact, this is a continuation of the thing that I've been talking about for the last few Bible studies. Do you remember the theme of all the Bible studies in the last few months? It's been a matter of exercising in the Spirit. Do you remember that? And I've been talking about the things we've got to do and keep on doing to build ourselves up in our faith and to make sure that we're strong and healthy and onward going all the time. And so this is a continuation. By the way, as I was uh, coming out, I just was thinking about this, that uh, when you do physical exercise, you reach a certain limit, you know, and you can't go beyond that. Did you know that that's the case? They generally reckon you reach the peak of fitness at about the age of 18. And after the age of 18, it's downhill all the way, folks. Put your hands up here if you're 18 or over. Would you do that? You're on the way down. Sorry about this. Um, you can actually delay it by continuing the activity, but eventually, of course, things will catch up with you. The lovely thing about being a Christian is that you age much more slowly than the people of the world. And, uh, of course, we have people over 80 in the midst here who will say, what do you mean? you know, we're on the way down, they still feel as if they're 21. And that's right, that's the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, we all know it's the case. You reach the maximum vitality and the maximum peak of fitness around the age of 18, say to 25, and then you begin to decline. That's not true in the spiritual realm. Isn't that good news? In the spiritual realm, you can carry on and on and on and on and on and on and on exercising, and you get healthier and healthier and stronger and stronger, and the older you are, generally speaking, the healthier you are and the more strong you are. Now, that's wonderful news, isn't it, you see? But it's this exercise that we're speaking about. Do you remember, in former studies, I've talked about what we mean when we talk about spiritual exercise? And especially in the talk that I did called Walking in the Spirit, where I outlined this, do you remember what it was? You take the Word of God, you mix it with faith, and then you start living and moving according to that which is in the Word of Truth. Now, that's the principle that we've seen outlined. 
All right, so if the word says it, we believe what the word is actually saying, and so we start functioning according to that. And last week I gave what I hope was a very heart-rending Bible study on forgiveness, in which I demonstrated the sort of principle. Do you remember the Bible study last time came in two sections? Do you remember that? First of all, we talked about the fact that we are forgiven ones. And I said that our sin is forgiven and the consequences of our sin have been removed. And then in the second half of the talk, I then said that because we are forgiven, so we have to forgive. Now that's what we mean by spiritual exercise, all right? There is something that's true about us, and then knowing that truth, we then move out in that truth and we start applying it in our lives and to other people. Now that's the sort of thing we're talking about. The Bible would say this, for example, it would say that we are living epistles. And that sums up, really, what I'm saying. The epistles that we have in the Bible tell us the truth about ourselves. What we have to do is to take that into ourselves, and then we have to start living the truth as it is, so that as the people look at us, they see a living demonstration of the truth about us contained in the Word of God. Now that's what we mean by exercising, all right? And that's the sort of thing we're talking about. Let's just check this out with two scriptures, and then I'll show you exactly what I'm talking about. Can we go first of all to 1 Timothy and chapter 4? 1 Timothy and chapter 4. And please don't be offended by what this actually says. And I'm going to read verse 6, 7, 8, and 9. And could I remind you, please, that in the days in which this is written, many of the people in the church actually couldn't read at all. And one of the things that had to be done in the church was a regular reading of the Word of God. Sometimes I'm very tempted to bring this back. At least it makes sure that everyone hears the Word of God and takes it in regularly. And uh, this is what Paul says to Timothy. Verse 6 of chapter 4, If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, talking about the things he's just been talking about, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith. Do you remember we talked about nourishment? Nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine. There is such a thing as bad doctrine, by the way, and not all the doctrine going around today is good doctrine. And what I'm trying to do... I nearly said desperately, but that expresses the desire of my heart, is to get principles into people's heads so that they could discern between good and bad doctrine. All right? You'll be built up, nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained. Verse 7, but refuse profane and old wives' fables. Don't be offended by that, anyone, will you? Old wives' fables. The only people that had any leisure in these days were the old wives. You see, and they had plenty of time to sit around and to talk. And unfortunately, what was happening is they were gossiping a rather lot. They had the doctrine of the long proboscis. Their nose was into everyone else's business. And they were being fanciful about the Word of God. And certain doctrines were coming around, you know, that came from this sort of source. And they sounded so right, but they were rubbish. And profane meant he had to stamp them under his foot and have nothing to do with it. Don't get involved with or endless genealogies and this highfalutin stuff. Get down to the solid word of God. That's the warning to this young man. And then it says this, And exercise thyself rather unto godliness. Don't get taken up with the fables. Don't devote yourself to the foolishness that's going round. Rather get down to solid doctrine and build yourself up. Nourish yourself and then exercise thyself unto godliness. And there's the word exercise. In other words, put the word of God into action in your life, and so you're exercising, so you will become more like Jesus, and godliness will be the end result. For bodily exercise, this is what I've just said, profits literally for a little time. Right? I used to think, by the way, that this said it didn't profit at all, that I didn't like physical exercise. It doesn't say that. It says it does profit for a little time, uh, but godliness is profitable for all time, or eternally, literally. Isn't that good news? Uh, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. Praise the Lord. One other scripture, just to underline this. Uh, go to Hebrews and chapter 4 and verse 1 and 2. And here we're told to fear something, a scripture you know well, I hope. 
Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Fear, he says, lest there's a promise that you haven't yet claimed and that you're not moving in accord with. Be fearful about that. And then he quotes uh, history, verse 2, for unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, that is the Exodus generation. But the word preached to them did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. And in that generation, the word was preached to them, but they put it on one side, and then they carried on acting in the natural realm. And as a result, the very preach word of God did them absolutely no good at all, because they didn't mix it with faith. Now that's what we mean by exercise. You take the word of God, you mix it with faith, then you put it into action, and we've got to make sure that we do have this mixture all the time. Why is it, by the way, that God demands that when we move, we move in faith? It actually says in Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. And have you ever wondered why it is that God demands this peculiar thing called faith to be in our lives so abundantly? Well, I've really been praying about this, and I've been receiving a revelation which isn't complete yet, but I've seen enough to get very excited about it. I suddenly realized why God demands that I move in faith. It's because he moves in faith towards me. You think about that just for a moment. Do you know that at this moment, God is not only demanding that you move in faith, he is actually moving in faith towards every one of you who's believed in the Lord Jesus Christ in this room. He's moving in faith every day towards you. I'll give you uh, some examples of what I mean, shall I? Do you know, for example, that in the Bible, every single person who's believed in the Lord Jesus Christ is called a believer? Have you, do you know that? God looks at you and says, there's a believer. The funny thing is, however, that there are some believers who don't believe. You know, they have doubts, they're skeptical. And they say, oh, I'm not sure about this. And God might say to them, you're a doubter, or you're a skeptic. He doesn't. He says, no, 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 I won't have that. To my mind, you are a believer. And no matter whether you're a doubting believer or not, God insists you are a believer. He will have it no other way. Isn't that wonderful? And do you see what he's doing? He's moving in faith towards you. He discounts the doubt, and he says, no, no. As far as I'm concerned, they're believers. And so it goes on. Look at the word saint. Do you know, believers of every generation have been called saints. That's one of the titles of a believer. Believer's a title, so is saints a title. And every one of you who's in this room, if you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, God says you're a saint. The word saint means a sanctified one, a holy one. And God looks at believers, and even though they may have trouble with sin in their life, and even though they find sin, the thing that they don't want to do, constantly appearing in their life, God still says, you're saints as far as I'm concerned. He will have it no other way. Remarkable, isn't it? This is the very faith of God towards you. But just have a look at the Corinthian church. Now, isn't it funny? Rahab has to go through life and for eternity to being called Rahab the harlot. You know, her sins being numbered after her, even though she was born again. The Corinthian church will always be known as the Las Vegas church, right? The church, the bad lads, the carnal church. Boy, if anything was going on, it was going on in the Corinthian church. But look at the title that God gives the Corinthian church. Go first of all to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 1 and see this as God moving in faith towards them. 2 Corinthians Chapter 1, verse 1. Look at this. Paul, he says, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints which are in all Archaea. And you see there, you are saints and they are saints. And even though you're bad lads, you're still saints as far as God is concerned. Remarkable. 1 Corinthians starts the same way. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Now, if you know the content of 1 Corinthians, this should surprise you. In this letter, he's going to tell them off for their carnality. He's going to list their sins and actually chastise them about it. But look how it begins. 
1 Corinthians 1.1, 1, 1, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ. Now, if you know what he's about to say, this is a remarkable statement. He says they are sanctified. And then the rest of the letter is talking about sin and division and all the carnality. But you are sanctified, he says, in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. Now that's the operation of God's faith concerning you. Do you know everyone in this room, if you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, do you know you're called a king? Do you know that? Every one of you is called a king. And that assumes you're in a position of rulership. Even the weakest believer, you know, who perhaps is being kicked around by the littlest demon out. He's still called a king as far as God's concerned. Isn't that remarkable? Do you know you're all called priests? Do you know that? Even people who never function in their priestly role, God still insists that they're called priests. Even people who would call themselves laymen. Oh, I'm one of the laity. I'm a lay preacher. God still says, ha, 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 hold on. To me, you're a priest. In a place like ours, where you have the ability right, on the opportunity to move, even if you don't move, God still insists that you are actually a priest. Every one of you is called an overcomer. Isn't that remarkable? You know this verse. How many times have I been to this verse? Let's have a look at it again, shall we? Just in case you don't believe me. 1 John 5, 4 and 5. And don't you dare interpret the first part of Revelation, until you've read this. This came first. This is through the same author. It uses the same language as Revelation. Look what it says. And God is insistent that this is the case. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? In other words, an ordinary believer. Every believer is an overcomer. But what about me, you say? I'm kicked around by this person and that person and all these circumstances are against me and, and it's so awful. And God still says, I know all about that, but to me you are still an overcomer. And that's his faith in operation, right? I think I've mentioned in former studies, you know, a man said to another chap, um, how are you? And he said, well under the circumstances, I'm all right. And this man of God said, well, what are you doing under the circumstances? You're an overcome, you should be above the circumstances. God says to you, you're accepted in the beloved. Even if you're feeling so rejected, and as, you, as if you're not accepted at all, God still insists you're accepted. Right? You read it in the scripture sometime, it's amazing. Do you know, God says you're dead. For ye are dead. Oh, if only we weren't. I mean, the problem in the body of Christ is that there are too many people who are only too alive, you know? The I am, unfortunately, is crucified positionally in Christ, but unfortunately still rears its ugly head for many believers, you see? But God still says, despite all of that, despite all the problems, you're dead. And yet, he says, raised to newness of life. Oh, but my life seems so drab. I'm still dominated by the old. God says, you've been raised to newness of life. And that's the way God speaks all the time. I mean, we can go on and on and on. Do you know you're called sons? That is, mature sons. Even if you're immature sons, he still calls you mature sons. You're called witnesses. Even if you never open your mouth, and I really trust that you do. You're called ambassadors for Christ. Citizens of heaven. These are the terms that are used. Do you know the very word church means the called out ones? I mean, when God, knowing all the history of the church, and hasn't it been a rough ride, by the way, for 2,000 years? It's been carnality, division. It's been the human flesh rising up. I mean, if I'd been God and I'd scratch my head and I had to call this thing by a name, I don't think I'd have called it by the name church. You know, I would have said the rabble or something like that. God doesn't. God's moving in faith. God says, this is the name I'm going to give it. I'm going to call it the called out ones, the set apart ones, the church. He calls it the body of Christ, which indeed it is. In other words, he assumes that this very thing he calls the church is going to have the love and dedication of his own son, the preoccupation with the glory, his glory. 
These are the sort of things that actually come out. It's most remarkable. Do you know, by the way, that even our unity is a matter of faith? You can't find the scripture anywhere in the New Testament that says we must make the unity of the church. Be eager to make the unity of the church. Be eager, you know, to develop unity because there isn't any. God doesn't move in that realm. God moves in faith. I mean, have a look at it. Ephesians 4 verse 3 and note the wording very carefully. Now, all this is very remarkable. I don't know whether you've thought about this before. All right, now look at this. Uh, verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you were called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavouring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You see the word keep there? In other words, well, of course, you have got unity. You've just got to make sure you keep it. And, of course, the Holy Spirit is in everyone who's believed, so there is basic unity. And that's what God is moving in. He's moving in a realm of faith concerning us. All the titles that apply to you are all titles of faith. You may look at yourself and say, God, how can you call me that? But God insists he's going to call you that. Because he's not viewing you in the natural, he's viewing you in faith. You see, now if God moves in that way, he demands you move in that way. By the way, if I'd been Paul, I wouldn't have spoken like this. There would have been sarcasm to the so-called saints in Christ. That's what I would have said, you know. To the doubters at Galatia, to the undercomers. These are the things that I would have used. God is moving in faith towards us. And because he moves in faith towards us, he expects us to move in faith towards him and to move in faith concerning one another and ourselves also. Now, this is something that is not practiced in the body of Christ. The body of Christ tends to move in the natural realm, but God wants us to start moving in faith in accord to all that he is saying. By the way, the chorus that we sing, Ascribe greatness to our God the Rock is a chorus of faith towards God. And what it's saying is this, though your circumstances may be rocky, though you don't know which way to turn, what you don't say is, God, are you in control? You don't. What you say is, Lord, despite all that's going on around, I thank you that you are in control. You see, you're ascribing greatness to his name, even though you may not see it at this moment in your personal life. Now that sort of chorus is a faith chorus and we're moving in faith then towards God. But we've got to move in faith also in relation to ourselves and in relation to the church. And that's really what the subject is about tonight, functioning in the church. And we've really got to understand what it is. Basically what I'm talking about is this, that the church is the community of the redeemed. And we've got to function according to our redemption within the church. Do you know the church is actually the arena in which all the glorious things that pertain to our salvation are shown and demonstrated? Did you know that's what the church is about? That when we come together, we start living out this glorious salvation that we've got, and we start demonstrating all that God has done for us, the wonderful change that's in our lives. And if, if the church is to truly be what God wants it to be, it has to be a body of faith. It has to be that which moves in accordance to the truth that is in it. Do you see what God does towards you? God looks at you, he knows what's going on in your life, but he knows what he's done in you. And he reckons that the work he's done in you is more powerful, more lasting, greater than anything you're experiencing at this moment, and he chooses to move and speak in that which he has done, because it's the greater. Do you see what he's doing? And because he does that, he expects you to do the same. He expects us, when we meet together as the church, to function according to that which he has done in us. Now, unfortunately, though many fellowships start that way, many fellowships don't end that way. The church in Galatia went wrong like this. Can we just have a look at uh, Galatians 3.3? 3, 3? Let's see this. Galatians chapter 3, verse 3. Galatians 3.3. 3. Now this is what he says. 
Are you so foolish, he says, and the nearest race, of course, we have to the Galatians are the Celts around, whether they're Irish, Welsh, Scots, Bretons in uh, uh, France, they're the nearest to the Galatians. The Galatians moved out. They travel right across through uh, Austria, through Switzerland, right out to the extremities of France and so on. And if you're a Celt, this is especially to you, and I know why as a Celt myself. Verse 3, are you so foolish, it says, having begun in the spirit, are you now made perfect in the flesh, or do you now end in the flesh? And the great tragedy, you know, with church history is this, that so many things have started in the spirit, and they've been glorious. The very glory of God has been seen in these things, and yet sooner or later they turn into something which is natural. Isn't it a tragedy? I've seen so many fellowships start just right. And every time people meet together, they're so thrilled with what God's done. They're so thrilled with what God's done in them and through them and in their brother, in their sister. They've always got testimonies. Oh, it's so glorious, the work that God has done. But before long, those people have sort of relaxed a bit. And then they seem to revert to type. Not quite the dog turning back to its vomit. But they begin to forget who they are in the spiritual. They put their feet up and they begin to relax. And now they're functioning in the natural. I've seen this happen time and time and time and time again. At first you meet together in your latest prayer meeting, in the gentleman's prayer meeting, in the, this prayer meeting, in that prayer meeting, in that little group, in this little group, and at first you pray about the thing, oh Lord, just bring us together, and Father, we just want your glory to be seen. And after a while it's, hi, got the kettle on. And you start moving in the natural. It's almost as if familiarity with the things of God breeds a contempt for them. I've seen this happen time and time again, and so many fellowships lose the vitality and the vibrance because they've actually started to move in the flesh and not in the spirit anymore. They start living according to the flesh, and so they downgrade the work of God, and the very glory of God goes out. I have to tell you this, that the church is a supernatural, miraculous creation of God. This fellowship we're in, and every fellowship, is a, a curious miraculous development of God. And it will only glow as we live and move in the Spirit, which gives us all things that pertain unto life. The moment we begin to move with the emphasis on the natural is the moment you'll find the Holy Spirit begin to be pushed out. And once that starts to happen, soon, why, you've got a social club on your hands. That's all you've got. You know, a little gas ring going on. And it's horrific. And what you find is soon people, there are little cliques develop. Some people call them cliques, you know. Unfortunately, a clique is too soft a sound. They tend to be trumpets. But I mean a little clique or clique develops. And you know, and they, and they sit around. They're all similar types in the natural. And what they sort of say, they point the finger at everyone else. They say, oh, well, because they're not like us. Or something like that. Oh, I've seen the most terrible things going on in fellowships. Or you start finding that people who are genuinely moving in their faith, oh, he's over-spiritual. You know, he's over-spiritual. Or he's unreal. Or whatever. And these phrases are used. And all they're doing is pouring scorn upon those who move by faith in what God says. I hope you don't pour scorn on God's faith towards you. I hope you don't say, well, oh, you're over you've really been over-spiritual. You're unreal about me. Call me a believer. I spend most of my life doubting. Don't ever do that. The moment we start moving in the flesh, that's exactly the sort of thing that actually starts to happen. And the moment that happens, I'll tell you, the work of God begins to decline in any group of people. Um, it happens, of course, because the devil's there. The devil wants this to occur. It's only as I live and move in who I am in Christ that the excitement of the Spirit starts coming forth. And I found this, by the way, God takes your natural personality, who you are, and he uses it. We've all been made differently, and praise God for the difference between us. You know, we're all different to reach different types of people. But beloved, when we're talking about God, and we're talking about the work of God, then we all flow together. We come together, no matter what your background's been, no matter who you are in natural personality. There is a wonderful unity and a flow together. Isn't it thrilling? Beware lest any member of any fellowship forget the miraculous nature of their salvation. You, beloved, are the community of the redeemed. You're not just a community, like the Rotary Club or 
the Conservative Association, you're not like that. You are the community of the redeemed, and the thing underlined is the redemption. And we live in our redemption. What does redemption mean? It means God's paid the ransom, and you've been set free. We're the community of those who've been set free. But some people say, oh, well, we're all sinners, saved by grace. Have you heard them say that? And they, they underline the word sinners. What they're really saying is, well, there you are. You see, we're all sinners, all got our failings, so we'll carry on in these failings, and that's it. And, uh, and eventually, you end up not a community of the redeemed, you end up the community of sinners who are delighting in their sinfulness. It's not the word sinners that should be underlined, it's the word saved. With a community of sinners saved, hallelujah. Saved means you've been delivered. Isn't it wonderful? So you don't get together and delight in your failings and, oh, I'm like that too, you know, and yeah, we're all like this together. Because if you do, it's a spiral down and before long the whole glory of the Lord has vanished from the midst of the body. No, you don't. You glory in the things that pertain unto salvation. Praise God. Sinners saved. Hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. He set me free from this. He set me free from that. We've got to make sure this, this is true of every fellowship. And a fellowship or church can only function if the individual members are functioning in faith and exercising their faith on a daily basis. Do you know, the Christian life is such an exciting life. It's wonderful to meet with other Christians, to hear what God is saying to them, what God is doing in their lives, and what God is doing through them. It's the most wonderful thing, you know? And then, of course, you can talk about other things, but all the time it's your oneness in Christ, your unity in Christ, that is the underpinning of absolutely everything. It's a delight. Every fellowship should be glowing with excitement. And the moment that excitement ends, beware, brethren, lest having begun in the Spirit, you're ending in the flesh. There's a good friend of mine in Wales, dear Tom Lloyd. He used to be a miner, very small chap, lovely minister. We must get him to the fellowship sometime. But I remember once he was ministering in Mevergissi or some outlandish place like that. And um, he suddenly stopped and he said, listen, he said, I've heard, I won't put on the Welsh accent, he said, I've heard some people say that branches grow on trees. I thought, what earth has this got to do with what he's talking about? Yes, he said, some people really think that branches grow on trees. He said, do you? I thought, oh, pretty good. He said, they don't. They grow in trees. I couldn't get it until he explained it. And what he said was this, and it's true. Every branch doesn't just grow on the tree as if it's separate to the tree. It grows from the tree. It's in the tree. In other words, the very life that pulsates through the tree has got to pulsate through that branch. You see the point that he's making? And he says, too many people, you see, have actually joined our church. I think he was talking about their own church. And they're not pulsating with the life that's in this place. Beloved, that's exactly what I'm speaking on tonight. If we are true branches of the vine, the very life of the vine is moving through us all the time. We should be green and supple because of the sap passing through us. And this means a daily communication in the life of God. Absolutely thrilling, praise God, to be in that sort of realm. The moment the life starts to stop flowing through a branch, it becomes a dead branch. It's dead wood. And you know what happens? Sooner or later, of course, the tree is killed by the dead wood that it's collected. And if fellowships actually have members within them who are no longer living in the life of God, they are actually damaging the whole work of God. Isn't that staggering? And what they tend to do, you know, they hold the body of Christ up to ransom. Well, this is who I am. You've got to love me. You've got to do this. And many Christians today don't make any attempt at all to move in that which is sanctified or that which is in the spirit or that which is supernatural. They are preoccupied with the natural and holding up the work of God. Beloved, it's our responsibility, every one of our responsibility, to make sure that we are functioning in the life of God. And as we function in the life of God, do you know the whole body edifies itself? The life of God is moving through every joint, praise God, and every branch is pulsating and giving forth its shoots. We've got to make sure that that's absolutely true. You see? Oh dear, I could list example after example of uh, Christians who've joined fellowships. They haven't been in the fellowship, they've been on the fellowship. 
Branches growing on the tree instead of in the tree. And before long, they're a heavy weight. And before long, you know, you find that they're stopping the growth in many other areas. It's our responsibility to start exercising our faith and functioning according to what God has done in our lives. Do you know, most problems in fellowships are caused by this. People functioning in the natural instead of in the spiritual realm. Did you know that that's the case? You can put down, I would say, 80% of all fellowship problems down to the old carnal activities of carnal people. I mean, you have to go back to the Corinthians to demonstrate this. Go back to the Corinthians and let's see this. In 1 Corinthians and chapter 3. Now look at this, and he's describing the state of this church, and at the end, I think he gives the analysis of why it's been happening. 1 Corinthians 3, 1, 2, and 3. And he says this, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual. But, beloved, they are spiritual because they've been born again. They've been born from above. Their inherent nature is one of the heavenly, not of the earth. But he says, I can't speak to you on that level. You see? You've gone into the flesh so deeply. I can't speak you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even unto uh, as unto babes in Christ. I fed you with milk, not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are you able, for you are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and division, wherever there's envying, strife and division, do you think it's come from the life of God? Of course it's not come from the life of God. It's come from the life of the flesh. That shouldn't be functioning at all in the body of Christ. Whereas there is among you envying and strife and division, are you not carnal? And look at this, and walk as men. That means walking around as ordinary individuals. And beloved, I tell you this, if in the church of Jesus Christ, individual members of fellowship start moving in the natural and walking around like ordinary people, honestly, you'll have all the divisions that the world has got. Do you know most people in the world have a very quiet life? They choose their friends and they drop them like hot cakes if they do something against them. Did you know that's the case? They come in at night, they close the door, the phone hardly goes, they watch TV all night. They have a very quiet and boring, may I say, life, right? Oh, yes. That's not what life is about, you see? But if they had to mix in close proximity with others, there'd be divisions, fighting, and all the other things. It's only through the body of Christ that you can have such close proximity without infighting and envying and division. But that can only be so if we function in the new man. You see? If you start functioning as ordinary men, you'll have all the things that pertain unto ordinary life. And if the church is to function, it demands that every one of us function according to our faith, not just in the natural realm. Now, this is absolutely essential. I heard a chap on the radio a little time ago, and at first I liked what he said. He made a statement that I couldn't disagree with more. He said this, God has given us love in the body of Christ to protect us from one another. God has given us love in the body of Christ to protect us from one another. In other words, someone comes up to you and hurts you, but you've got to love them anyway, and eventually they've got to love you, and so the hurt is healed. I don't agree with that at all, you know. Do you know, you're not designed to hurt anyone. You're designed to move in the new man so that you don't hurt anyone. Right? Do you know that Jesus in me doesn't want to hurt you? Did you know that? The new man in me wants to do nothing wrong to you at all. It just wants to encourage you and build you up. As an elder, I have to admonish you sometimes, unfortunately. You know, that's a role of an elder, you see, to admonish those. And then, of course, you can always say, oh, heavy submission, this fellowship's in, and all the other things that happen. But, but nevertheless, the new man in me honestly doesn't want to do anything wrong at all to you. And the new man in you, Jesus in you, doesn't want to hurt me. You see, Jesus is crazy about me. Did you know that? He really is. No, not with worry. He, he's thrilled with me. He loves me so much, does Jesus. Not because there's anything intrinsically good, but because he's chosen to love me. Now, Jesus in you loves me. Isn't that wonderful? Great stuff. There's hope for me. Thank you, Lord. And Jesus in me loves you. So what is there in me that reacts against you? It's not Jesus. It's that which is in the natural. 
you see? Now, the more we start functioning in the spiritual, the more we find the body of Christ functions as it ought to function. And I believe we've got to actually point the finger where the finger has got to be pointed. Lord, this problem that's in this body, is it created through the flesh or is it created through the spirit? It has to be through the flesh. Right, so let's deal with the flesh. And that's the route that we have to take. Love is given not to protect one another, of course not, but to communicate the new man to one another. That's what it's all about, you see. All right? We've got a new heart, so we can love. Jesus really is in me, and so we can function in all of these ways. So we've got to start functioning in these ways. This means that on a daily basis, we've got to start moving in faith and in our belief. I'm interested, by the way, in John 6. Can we just turn to John 6? I dealt with this a few weeks ago, I think. But in John 6, there's a, a verse that's one of the favorites of a certain minister who comes from America. I don't object to this at all. John 6, 28. Now, as you know, normally when the word believe is used of salvation, it's in the aorist tense. That is, you believe in a moment of time and you keep on being saved. This one's different. Look at what they ask, verse 28. Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? What should we keep on doing so that we might constantly work the works of God? And the answer he gives is this. Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that you keep on believing on him whom he hath sent. It's present tense here. Now, the moment you believe, you come into the realm of the supernatural, but to keep on seeing the work of God, you've got to keep on believing on a daily basis. That's the walk of faith. Praise God. And you know, every day as I believe what God has said about me, I can function in that which God has said about me. I know some people would say, oh, I'm a bit of a doubting Thomas. Have you heard people say, use that phrase of themselves? Beloved, don't you demean yourself. There's no one in this room that is a doubting Thomas. Certainly not. Do you know, Thomas was actually around the Lord Jesus Christ. He saw him. He walked with him. He talked with him for three and a half years. He witnessed the miracles. His unbelief was worse than any person's unbelief in this room. Just turn to John 20, and let me encourage you with this. Praise the Lord, before I tell you your divine operating assets. Hallelujah. In John 20, let's just see the extent of the unbelief of Thomas. Verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, here he is, he's double-minded man, he's got two names, and it means the twin, two minds, you know, the twin and two names, there he is. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. He appeared to them, do you remember, in the upper room. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We've seen the Lord. He says, Except I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails. Staggering, isn't it? And thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, again, his disciples were within, and Thomas was with them, praise the Lord. But those eight days must have been agony. You know, but Thomas saying, oh, I don't think this is right, and so on. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then said he to Thomas, because he'd heard the former conversation, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands. Reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen, and yet have believed. The thing about Thomas was, unless he saw the Lord, he wouldn't believe. Beloved, I doubt whether there's anyone in this room who's actually seen the Lord. Yet we believe. Praise God. You're not as bad as Thomas was. Do you know what happened to Thomas? He went into India. He established 1,800 churches in India. Now, if God can take such a, an unbeliever like this and establish 1,800 churches through them, imagine what he can do through you. This is a passage of great encouragement. What it demands is that we start moving in faith in our regular daily lives. And so now we have to say, all right, 
So I've got to take the word of God and I've got to move in faith according to it. But what has God done for me? Well, he's done certain things for you. And I'm going to ask the sheets that I've duplicated to now be passed along the rows because I'm now going to do something that I've been promising for at least eight years. Hallelujah. You know, I'm the type of Bible teacher, I like to keep people dangling a bit. It builds up the expectation. And I think uh, when I first started talking about these things, I talked about the 34 things that happened the moment you were born again. Then I suddenly realized there were two more. So later on in the basic series, you find that I keep saying, and when you are born again, 36 things happened the moment you believed. I've now discovered one more. And I don't believe this is the final list. I'm sure there are other things. The moment you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, in that split second, 37 things happened to you. And it might be more. Praise God. And what I'm going to do, do you know what, I'm just going to read these as I printed them here. As I read them, you'll find they build your faith enormously. Just put your hand up here, by the way, if you haven't got one of these sheets. Just hand up someone who hasn't got one of these sheets. All right, everyone's got one. This is called 37 Things, and we're going to publish it as a little sort of tract, rather like my statement of faith. All right? praise God. My secretary has been busy on these, and uh, they cost, I suppose, about four or five pence each. Um, If you want to put five pence in the box at the back on the way out, that will be very gratefully received. 37 things. There are 37 things which accompany salvation. And by that I mean the moment you were born again, these things were true of you. And I'm going to just read them through. As you read them through, You see how they build your faith up. It's thrilling. And don't just put this piece of paper away. Will you pray over each one? I mean, this is a month of prayer. Over a month of prayer for most people. Pray over each one until you get the revelation of it and start functioning in it. One, all Christians are in the eternal plan of God and sharing the destiny of Christ. Isn't that thrilling in itself? A, they are foreknown. Then I give the scriptures, but I'm not going to read those out. You can look them up yourself. They are foreknown. B, they are elect. C, they are predestined. D, they are chosen. E, they are called. And if you want, you can make it personal. The moment I believed, I was in the eternal plan of God, and I share the destiny of Christ. I'm foreknown. I'm elect. I'm predestined. I'm chosen. I'm called. If we recited these things every morning, it would make such a difference in the body of Christ. Secondly, God's character is satisfied with all Christians. We call that propitiation. God's character is satisfied with me. Not because I'm anything great, but because of the work of Jesus. Three, all Christians have been made acceptable to God. A, they've been made righteous. B, they've been sanctified in Christ. See, they've been perfected forever. Isn't that wonderful? D, they've been made fit to be partakers of the inheritance. Four, all Christians have been reconciled. A, by God. B, to God. Hallelujah. Five, all Christians have been brought near to God. Six, all Christians have access to God. Seven, the sins of all Christians, have been judged in Christ. Now, say we stop there. Could you write the other 30 things? We should know all of these, shouldn't we, if we're going to function in them? Oh, well, praise God. That's why we've got Bible teachers, to do the work for us. Eight, all Christians have been forgiven their trespasses. Nine, all Christians have been justified, that is, declared righteous. By the way, some people say, justified, just as if I'd never sinned. Rubbish. God can't overlook sin just like that. Do you remember Salvation Series 1? God cannot overlook sin like that. No. It's just as if you have sinned, but God has officially dealt with the sin and officially declared you righteous. Um, Ten. All Christians have been redeemed. Exagarezo. Do you remember it from one of the first Bible studies? Bought from the slave market of sin. Eleven. All Christians have had condemnation removed from them. 
This may not be your experience, but this is the truth about you in God. Twelve, all Christians have been regenerated. They're born again. A, they are born again. B, they are children of God. C, they are sons of God. D, they are new creations. Thirteen, all Christians have a revitalized human spirit. The human spirit before you were saved was a bit like a flat battery. It was there all right, but no energy in it. Now it's been empowered by God, and it's functioning again. Fourteen, all Christians have been given eternal life. Fifteen, all Christians are light in the Lord. And let your little light shine. And that's why I spoke on uh, beacons or smudge pots quite recently. Right? You're either a beacon or a smudge pot. But nevertheless, the truth about you is you've been made light in the Lord. Sixteen, all Christians have a secure foundation. Seventeen, all Christians have been delivered from the power of sin. And that's official, folks. You've been delivered from the power of sin. Eighteen, all Christians have died to the old life and are alive to God. A, they are crucified with Christ. B, they are dead with Christ. C, they are buried with Christ. D, they are raised with Christ. And now we're just under halfway through. It's glorious stuff. Nineteen, all Christians are free from the law. They are dead to the law. They are delivered from the law and under grace. Praise God. The law is actually fulfilled in us, as Romans 8, 4 clearly says. Twenty, all Christians have been delivered from the powers of darkness. Hallelujah. Do you know, I believe, a revelation of that would liberate you and deliver you instantly from all the hold of the devil. I generally find you've only got to struggle in deliverance when people don't have a revelation of this. Have a revelation of it, the devil packs his bag quickly and clears out of town. Hallelujah. 21, all Christians have been transferred into God's kingdom. We are there already. 22, all Christians are members of the family and household of God. 23, all Christians have been predestined to adoption. That is mature sonship. You're going to be a mature son one day, praise God. God, in one passage, moves out and says, you are now. That's his faith coming through. 24, all Christians have a new status, or as the Americans would say, status. All Christians have a new status. A, they are citizens of heaven. B, they are seated in heavenly places in Christ. C, they have a rank higher than all the angels, I could have added, including the devil. Praise God. 25, all Christians have a new position as well. A, they are partners with Christ in life. B, they are workers together with God. C, they are ministers of the New Testament. D, they are ambassadors. E, they are living epistles. F, they are ministers of God. 26, all Christians are a chosen generation and a people who belong unto God. Isn't that wonderful? The King James says you're a peculiar people. You belong unto God. 27, all Christians are priests. Only they believe it and start functioning. There are so many priests around, you know, who are cracking under the burden because the priests in the congregation are relying upon them to do all that is priestly. Isn't this a shame? You know, it's time every one of us functioned. A, they are a holy priesthood, 1 Peter 2, 5. B, they are a royal priesthood, 1 Peter 2, 9, Revelation 1, 6. 28, this may come as a surprise. All Christians have been glorified, praise the Lord. 29, all Christians are in the much more care of God. I love that. If when you were sinners, God did the best for you, now you're his sons, he'll do much more for you. That's what I mean by the much more care of God. Rather exciting. A, they're objects of his love. You receive his love. B, they're objects of his grace. Subsection one, for salvation. Two, for keeping. Three, for service. Four, for instruction. C, they are objects of his power. D, they are objects of his faithfulness. E, they are objects of his peace. F, they are objects of his consolation. And G, they are objects of his intercession. He intercedes for you every moment of the day. 30, all Christians have had the unhealthy, damaging effects of the past officially removed. 
true folks. Right? Let this proverb no more be said in Israel that the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. This may not be your experience, but this is the small print of the legal agreement. It's good news. Hallelujah. And it's time we started functioning in what is according to God, not what is according to our existence. Praise God. Got to get the balance. Absolutely right here. Praise God. 31. All Christians are God's inheritance. Do you realize that? When you die, God comes into you. You see? He inherits you. You imagine this. You are the creation of God and you are the things he is going to come into. You are his inheritance. It's marvelous. 32. All Christians are a gift from God the Father to God the Son. And he wanted the best thing in all creation to give to his Son and you're the best thing he could think of. Wow. 33. All Christians are joint heirs with Christ. Not only are you an inheritance, you're coming into an inheritance as well. This is really wonderful. 34. All Christians are united to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A. They are in God. B. They are in Christ. And further down, C. They are in the Spirit. Every single believer. And under the title B. They are in Christ, look at this. One. You're a member of his body. Two, you're a branch in the vine, pulsating with his life, I hope. Three, a stone in the building. Four, a sheep of the flock. Five, a part of his bride. Six, a priest in the kingdom of priests. Seven, a brand new creation. Thirty-five, all Christians have received the work of the Holy Spirit. A, they've been born of the Spirit. B, every Christian has been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. C, they've been baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. D, they've been sealed by the Spirit. E, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of their inheritance. 36, all Christians possess every spiritual blessing. Isn't that wonderful? Praise God. Ephesians 1.3, if you don't believe me. And last of all, all Christians are complete in him. Colossians 2, verse 10. Now this is quite a list, isn't it? Do you know, if you knew everything contained on these sheets, and if you believed everything contained on these sheets, and if you functioned in everything that contained on the sheet, there'd be absolutely no holding you, and there'd be no holding the body of Christ if it started functioning according to these. So you meet someone who's unlovable, that doesn't matter. You've got a new heart now, praise God, so you can love them so you're going to love them. Well, they're acceptable and they're beloved in the Lord, so they're acceptable and beloved to me. Greetings, brother. Isn't that thrilling? Right, I'm dead with Christ. Okay, if I'm dead with Christ, it doesn't matter that I lay down my life for the saints. I have every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. I'm complete in him. Therefore, I can function in faith in my giving and we can practice hospitality to one another. The Lord has provided everything I have. You're welcome to share a little bit of my sausage or whatever you're having for tea. We start functioning according to these things. And do you know, as soon as you move in faith towards God, you suddenly find he rewards you in your faith. And the very thing you're moving out in faith becomes true in reality. It's the most thrilling thing. Nothing like moving out in love to someone. Even if you don't feel you got the love, you'll get love back. That which you sow, you will reap. Isn't it good? Why is it we're busy sowing negative things? Gossip and negative. Oh, they've done this wrong. Oh, what about that? This. Have you seen that? If you do that, do you know, it all comes crowding back on your own head. I found this. People who want to stab me in the back, they end up stabbing themselves in the back. They sit down on the very dagger they've tried to use to stab me in the back. Don't bother about it. Why don't you hit me over the head with love instead? Right? And I'll hit you back, I promise. Praise God. (laughs) I won't turn the other cheek. Praise the Lord. I'll hit you right back. If we were functioning in these, it would be absolutely thrilling, you see. And you know, I could go on. I could then talk about all the things that are coming to you the moment you die. I could write other lists like this of the glorious assets that are ours. There's enough here to last a person a lifetime. And every single one of them is true about you. What we've got to do is this. In this, which is the local fellowship, which is the arena 
in which these things must be shown forth, we've got to make sure they are shown forth. Praise God. I'm still longing for the day when there is not one who's in need, not one feeble, not one unloved, not one uncared for person. It's no good, you know, trying to solve these needs in the natural. The first thing we've got to start doing is moving in the supernatural, and then we'll find that God will enable us then to move on a natural level to one another and meet one another. But we've got to reckon this individually. Right, two last scriptures, then I'm going to end for tonight. Let's go to Philippians 1.27, which we saw just a few weeks ago in a special study. Philippians 1.27, and this applies especially to fellowship life. Philippians 1.27, only let your manner of life, that's what the word conversation means in the King James, only let your manner of life be as it becomes the gospel of Christ. You see that? Be an ambassador in the way you live. Be a living epistle in the way you live. The way you live, let it show forth the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And you know, once we start functioning in all that God's done, this is how we start moving. There is one mind. There is one heart. There is one moving together, all with the different gifts, all with a different emphasis, but we're all aiming the same way. It only comes through the supernatural work of God. All right? And the last verse, Romans 14, 17 to 19. And I rather love this uh, passage. 17 to 19. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, it's not natural things, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. And if we are to present to the world the gospel clearly, these are the things they've got to start seeing in every local fellowship. They should be able to see righteousness. Right? Not sinners freaking out and doing their own thing. You've got to accept me as I am. I'm your sister, I'm your brother. And so on. No, righteousness being shown, striving unto holiness and to righteousness, and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. These are the things we must go after. Our lives have got to show forth the truth that we stand for. The Word must become flesh in our existence, all right? And as a fellowship and as churches, we must present an alternative society. It can only happen if every individual member is functioning correctly in the body. The life of God is available for you to do that. Now, we're going to pray in just a moment. Next time, we've only got three left before we come to the end of all the basic series. Next time I'm going to be speaking about another spiritual exercise, applying the blood, or claiming the blood, or whatever other phrase you want to use. And I'll be showing you how we move out in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and how we use it on a daily basis. Now let's just pray together, shall we? And let's ask God to really speak to our hearts through these things. Oh, praise you, Lord. Hallelujah. Praise you, praise you, praise you. Father, I do want you to forgive us that we misuse your body so often, Lord. And we take your grace for granted so often. Father, so often we use one another to pour out our woes and our complaints, the negative and the gossip and the bitterness. Instead, Father, of moving in the reality of your work within us, Father, your word says in many places we must edify one another. We must build one another up. It says if anything's good, think about that. If anything's true, think about that. Anything worthy, anything of good report, think about those things. Yet so often, Father, we persist in that which is negative. And I ask you tonight to forgive us. Forgive us too, Father, if in any way we've settled back on our lees, Father, and relaxed so that we're living in the natural and not in your spirit. And I would ask, Father, in Jesus' name, 
that new life will pour through all the branches in the vine in this place. We ask for the sap to rise again. Hallelujah. That we might feel the very pulsating power of God in us and, and working out through us. Father, if any of us that we haven't meant to be have become dead wood and we're killing the work of God, forgive us, Lord. Father, we want to be those who communicate life to members of the body. Help us through our lives, through our, the way we look at one another, through our attitude to one another, to the words we say to one another. Help us communicate that life. Father, I thank you for the glory of these 37 things. I ask, Father, that we should take these things away and really study them and take them in and inwardly digest them, that they might become flesh in our lives and in our being. Father, convict where conviction is necessary. Encourage where encouragement is necessary. And forgive where forgiveness is necessary. Father, we want to pray for our own fellowship here, that the vibrancy of Jesus might be seen in every meeting, that the life of God should pour out of those meetings, even as we come to pour life into those meetings as individuals. Father, revive us again, even by your Spirit. So I thank you for tonight, Lord, and the glorious things that you've revealed. Just bless everyone in the fellowship, those here, those not here. And may we have peace and righteousness and joy flowing like a river. In Jesus' mighty name, Amen. Praise God.